Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, Martin here. Electronically Yours, as usual. Uh, today's guest is has done so much stuff. I actually had to go to several pages of uh, notes uh, when I was doing my research. His name is James Lavelle, probably most famous, I suppose, for the Mowax label, which was uh, very, very influential in terms of early hip-hop, trip-hop, becoming very popular in this country. But also from the band Uncle, which he formed with... um, his friends, including DJ Shadow, uh, and the introducing album by DJ Shadow, is he, he was instrumental in uh, bringing to the public attention uh, one of my favourite albums of all time. He's also got an astounding um, documentary that's called The Man from Mowax, which is um, absorbing, to say the least, as a kind of uh, as a kind of uh, life trip through amazing early success through to kind of almost like a, a, a kind of not a breakdown but you know things going a bit wrong and then in the end everything coming back and he's a just a genuinely lovely guy um who i got on really well and as i say at the end of our talk i want to go and um, never met him in the flesh so i think it'd be nice if we went and had a coffee or a cup of tea together in soho probably so here he is the truly great James Lavelle. I have just this morning watched the uh, the doc- your documentary. Okay. <laughs> My God, that's an education. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what a brutally honest. Um, navigation of your life. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit in awe of. Uh, I don't think I could have gone down those paths that you went down in terms of, you know, your personal life and stuff like that. If I was ever doing anything, I wouldn't with- recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's. I regret doing it. With that, the thing with that documentary is many things. It has a certain narrative as well, and. I think there's certain things that kind of it, it it has a point of view where it kind of focuses on um more of the kind of you know the, the some of the, a lot of the downs but you know it was as many ways it's sort of more in, in many ways the highs are more extreme and the lows are more extreme but you know it definitely has a kind of narrative very much i think based on moax and i think for me a little bit what gets lost is unfortunately the sort of create a lot of creative stuff um, which if I ever did anything again, I would only ever want to focus hopefully on, on, on just the creative, but my life is a very different life now. But I do also think that unfortunately, but in a, it shows, you know, when the, the rea- some of the realities of when you're very young in the record business and what can happen. And unfortunately it was a big cliche for me, but that was, um, you know, we weren't very looked after. I mean, I was 27 when my wax finished. I was there was no conversations about mental health or anything like that. Or, I mean, most people are just getting started then. Yeah, you'd already had a lifetime. Yeah, really, you'd condensed a lifetime in the business into from for people who don't know the podcast listeners. I mean, you started when you were 18, really, as a professional. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and committing um, yourself to this path on instinct, really, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was it was an amazing period, and it was amazing looking back at what one achieved with everybody else that was in that mix and that coming together of all these incredible people. And I think that um, yeah, I mean, it was it was a kind of dream, but it was also very fast and. Um, you know, sort of, it's weird to think of that, you know, how much was done in that time frame. And uh, it's a long time ago for me. Um, you know. Yeah, absolutely. What what um, what advice would your current self give to your uh, 18-year-old self? Slow down. <laughs> to a degree, but it's very hard to say that when you're in that mix and you're, you know, everything's happening and you're, you know, I think that... Um, Business would be something that I would be much more aware of. And all of, you know, there were a lot of conflict of interests within what happened with my career. 
and uh, in retrospect, a lot of that stuff was was unfortunately very negative, you know. And um, I would, you know, so I recommend a good lawyer. <laughs> oh my God! The best advice anybody ever gave me was that, you know, we used to have Brian Carr, who was a famous music business lawyer, representing us, and we actually Heaven Seventeen represented ourselves uh, right. from kind of penthouse and pavement onwards, and. Um, they just said, "Look, you don't. If you get on with the record company, uh, which was Virgin at the time, which we did, and Virgin, but Virgin was always kind of a. I, I think from the outset was quite a good company in that way. Compared, yeah. you know, and I, I, one of my big regrets actually was, I, I, my favourite A and R man was Ashley Newton, who was at Virgin. Oh yeah." You know, Nana Cherry and Massive Attack and yeah. Spice Girls, and, you know, but had been, had also started Fourth and Broadway Records at Island, where I'd sort of done a bit of work experience. And um, I was, it was sort of between what, when I had my opportunity to sign to a major, it was between A&M, Virgin, and actually Deconstruction was the other one with BMG. And in the end, it was very, I was actually going to go to Virgin and then I got right. swayed at the last minute, but... But I what do. What you? Uh, my partnership with my manager. He was going to A and M. I was worried about losing that. That you know, he was at the time very much a sort of father figure for me. Um, Virgin. The idea was much more to become part of the system and become go inside the building, and you know they had the most, the best building in London. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the Harrow Road on the on the canal, and it was just, you know, was the, these were the days when you went to a record company, and they were just the most. It was like Alice in Wonderland, you know. You'd go in, and there'd be so much creativity. There were big places, and there was also, you know, the cafe and the bar, and you know, the screening rooms, and you know, there was it was these sort of these these cam- I suppose early kind of creative canvas campuses in many ways. Yeah, you know. I mean, when, when we did. Um... Uh, when we were signed, it was at, at Vernon Yard on Portobello Road. Yeah, I was about to say because that's that's they also had all of those um, spots, didn't they? Down at the top of Portobello towards Nottingham yeah. Bay, and that was like just a giant house full of mad people doing yeah. stuff. And yeah. you could walk into any department and talk to the heads of the department and shout. And they, oh, had, they had a video department. They had an art department. Yeah, so yeah. you know that it was it was you know it was they're amazing places to go. And but I was kind of going to go into the fold and become more A&R really at Virgin I think and with A&M there was an opportunity to really do things completely uniquely you know we tore yeah. up the book in those days of what you could and couldn't do within the system I went you know I, I actually ended up licensing to Virgin in France which was totally against the rules because in those days any record company their affiliated company whether it was Virgin being with EMI or A&M was with polygram at the time which became universal you didn't work with other companies that was a rule you know it was you you, yeah. you had to go through a system of each record company would have to sort of turn you down you know yeah yeah yeah. You know, and you had to go to auction yeah yeah and also you'd, you'd have that whatever the you know a&m would have a&m in america you know or and then they might go through another company in europe and those were the first ports of call and i we we create, created a situation where we licensed we went in we we distributed the records independently not through the universal system right 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 you know i like i put my american catalog with london records which was part of um polygram but the the opportunity was there to really do something which was kind of uh, creating a kind of a new independent system within within the support of a major structure and and osman who was doing AM was really interesting and uh became quite a mentor for me in many ways and, and wanted to try and do something different unfortunately it was short-lived you know and that was part of the i think really the big problem with with moax was signing i was 21 by the time i was 24 and and was being closed down you know yeah yeah, and, yeah. you know but you know as a kind of uh what would you call it a boutique label i suppose um i thought moax was fucking incredibly good i mean yeah. from a curatorial perspective and that was you wasn't it essentially 
yeah, it was me. And then, you know, I had my fingers in pies of all my sort of creative, you know, creative world around you and feeding off that and trying to, you know, I was trying to sort of break down barriers within the environment that I was in and, uh, you know, be do something which was international, don't do something which was, it wasn't, it wasn't something I thought about at the time, but in retrospect, it's interesting. It was very diverse. You know, it was, it was uh, a real mixture of, of, of sexes and sexual places, you know, everything. It was, it was a really amazing melting pot of just, of, of being this kind of, place where you know you all you know all of these kind of different styles of music and cultures and people could come together well, and that's just natural to me because of the records and the experiences that I was having in London and the music that I was into and you know having you know my first experiences being in places in London like Soho where you experience yeah. all these different things and going and traveling and through DJing and going you know, being obsessed with Japan and America and, and black music. And so I just wanted to create a place where I could put those records out, you know, and, and um, you know, and, and you'd feed off, you know, the, it brought people together and the record shops that you were, you know, places like Fat Cat Records or Rough Trade Records or, you know, they, you know, you, you, you know, those places were great places to discover things and conversations, yeah. you know. Um yeah, I, I, uh, I used to be uh, uh, very close friends with Mick Clark, you know. From yes, and again, I bet you know. He was one of my heroes. And you know kind of characters to you. Yeah, yeah. he was one of my heroes as an A&R man, even though I didn't meet him until a, a bit later, and he signed, when he signed Attica Blues yeah. to Sony. But he signed Soul to Soul, which... That's right. And, Inner City and... and That's right, and all, Yeah, and all of those labels, you know, Fourth and Broadway... Circa, which Ashley knew. Okay, yeah, we were we put yeah. an album out on Circa as well. Right, and Ten Records, which then that was his thing. But, yeah. You know, those were the labels that really inspired me when I was growing up as my first experience because they were the first labels to put out domestically a lot of electronic and hip hop records. You know, Fourth and Broadway would put out you know Eric B and Rakim records and and you know the Wild Bunch first record or Circa put out Massive Attack and Nature yeah. and 10 records put out Soul to Soul and Inner City and you know and those and these the, these were the records that I was growing up with when when I first started really really heavily buying records as a kind of you know wanting to become a DJ those those and these were all my heroes you know as, as, yeah. as, as, you know, let's talk about your your uh, kind of growing up and your acquiring this taste in me, this amazing curatorial direction. You know, obviously you started off as a DJ and and therefore you became uh, obsessed with, you know, crate digging and getting the right records and maybe even go to America and buy it and getting some stuff. And it, that came before the entrepreneurial bit, I suppose, didn't it? You were, what made you want to stop just being a DJ and start being a label? Because I must say, from my own point of view, <laughs> I've been asked to create a label many times, and I can't think of anything I'd rather do less. <laughs> it's so fraught with problems. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I started by, I grew up in Oxford. I, I think as a kid, I was quite obsessive about certain sub when I got into a subject I became very obsessive about it my first love was Greek mythology my father studied Greek classics at Oxford and I became obsessed with Greek mythology and it's interesting because I found books that I'd created and they're full out full of wow. and fold out covers so my mother was an artist so there was definitely this I can see that feeding into the Moax artwork in the yes. ideas packaging and things like that and collecting and then I became really into martial arts and kung fu and I again became obsessed and was studying to I started studying Chinese and trying to, I wanted to go and study at the Shaolin Temple when I was like you know in my sort of around 12 that sort of oh, age gosh. and then by doing kung fu and going to the to the school and also what was happening on the radio and I was really into music. My family, it was a very big thing. My father was a musician. 
um, not by trade, but his love. And he was a brilliant drummer. He was a great uh, guitarist and folk singer. He used to sing with the Dubliners in, in Ireland a lot. And, you know, uh, he's he he played um, in the kind of whole new British folk revival in the 60s. He did, I, I, I actually only found out not that long ago that he played at the Royal Albert Hall, you know, mm. when he was like 16, you know. And so there was music around. I, I, I learned to play the cello. My grandmother was a pianist and cello cellist and she was a teacher. And, you know, that combination with my dad constantly bringing records and listening to records in the car and the classic thing of my generation and generations before when you had Top of the Pops and all of that kind of thing. And there were, you know, Definitely, you know, growing up, I was listening to records like yours or, you know, there were the, as pop records and, and hearing these records as well as the suddenly started this emerging hip hop thing happening. Yeah. And yeah. Kind of just like seeing something from outer space. And it was and, the, and culturally what what kind of went with it was just something like seeing something in technicolor you know if i'd been older if i'd had an older brother probably would have been more into two-tone or something like that but this was like you know i think that just my just that timing of my age and what was going on and i started really you know but getting really into buying record it's at seven inches and a lot of cassettes i mean a lot of stuff you bought them was cassettes <laughs> and compilations you had things like Street Sounds compilations where they put together all these American. Oh, I bought loads of those, yeah. Yeah. And and I think I just started like always getting quite obsessed. And then there was an opportunity I remember at school where there was going to be the, a school party. I was probably about 13. And it was like the first school party that was being put on. And somehow I ended up becoming the DJ for the party. Yes. Um, that was more really playing, you know, playing some some seven inch records and some cassettes and things like that, and and you know it, it sort of started from there, and I started then getting more and more and more into buying records. I was going to London to do martial arts study in Soho, so I suddenly discovered that Soho was the ultimate destination for records. Yes, yeah, that's right. And so I started buying records there. I then, when I was mid-14, we had work experience at school, as we all did. And, you know, most most people would do something locally. I, I realised there was no rule that you couldn't, you did, had to be in Oxford to do your work experience. Mm -hmm. So I said I wanted to work in a record shop in London. Yeah, and, brilliant. And, and, and the school was a bit like, we can't really, well, if you can do it and you can stay there, then I suppose there's nothing we can do about it. Maybe you can do a few days work experience at your dad's law firm just so that you can yeah, kind of yeah. that box. And I rang a load of record stores. I think I started with Bluebird in, Edger in, in Berwick Street and Black Market and a couple of others maybe in Soho. Nobody, you know, it was like, uh, no, thanks anyway, bye, you yeah. know. And then I called Bluebird in Edgerow Road and they said, yeah. Great. And I went there and I did my week's work experience and then I ended up getting a Saturday job and working there for a couple of years. And in the end, I was starting to skive off school a lot and basically go and work there as much as I could and got, kind of got into a little bit of trouble at the, my last year of, of that period. I was being about 16. And then... I went to uh, a, a CFE of business to do business studies. I don't know why, just something I had to do something. I, I wasn't brilliantly academic. Um, and I was working at Bluebird and I sort of negotiated with them that I'd do a few, I'd do like three days work and then a couple of days at the shop. And in the end, the shop unfortunately closed down. And I remember it being, I'm thinking this was the end of everything for me. How would I ever move forward now? And uh, just at that point, again, a work experience then came up at college. And I um, asked Honest John's records on Portobello Road. I remember them, yeah. Yeah, they're still there. Yeah. Are they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. And in those days, they were they were basically, it was a very jazz specialist in the basement, and on upstairs it was all cut out, which was, um, you know, sort of American uh, import records, soul, funk, jazz, things that had been 
collected from America and brought over and being sold. And then reggae and dub and things like that. And I had suddenly got into that part of music. You know, I discovered Charles Peterson and I discovered, you know, um, this sampling and you know my what somebody the first one of the first people I worked with at Bluebird was a guy called Sefton the Terminator he was the world beatbox champion and he was really into hip-hop and he was trying to make records he was DJing a lot of the Stone Roses I think and um he showed me I remember the first record like that that I ever really heard that in a context of sampling and what you could do was Herbie Hancock Headhunters and he played it on 33 and then he played it on 45 which oh. sounds really good the first track and he's like and that was suddenly like oh my god all these records and and um underneath Bluebird they had uh, just endless old stock of stuff so I started going through all you know collecting and- this is your real education then yeah yeah and then I went to Bluebird and I ended up to uh, cut a long story short, I ended up working there full time. I left college and got, got a job there. Um, and with both those record stores, one of the main things was that they were big hubs for all of the DJs that would come. So I met a lot of really key big DJs. When I was at Bluebird, I met pretty much everybody from Paul Oakenfold to Pete Tong to Simon Dunmore, Tim Simonon from Bum the Bass. You know, they the big sort of key key DJs, Charles Peterson. And um, I, the Bluebird, they used to do the uh, a jazz chart for blues and soul and Echoes magazines. Yes, these kind of trade magazine. These are magazines that would have different categories reviewing records from you know predom- you know predominantly black music and electric. You know the kind of the new scenes that were happening and emerging at the time within dance music culture. And I started doing the what those charts and I took them to Bluebird and then DJs started coming to Bluebird and I introduced basically new records into Bluebird and selling new records. And through that, it became a bit of a mecca for a lot of this sort of records that were coming out of, of this sort of, from sort of weird hip hop records and sort of the tail end of acid jazz and, um, you know, there were white labels coming out from people like Tricky or there was, you know, unusual British London soul records. And I became really good at getting all those records, you know. Wow. White so the people who were who were, had the bigger reputation at that time were kind of tapping into your talent for... Yeah, and, and the DJs, Norman Jay would be coming, Giles would be coming, all the younger DJs, you know, that were playing, they would all come to get records from me. And I became really good at getting records from America. And I'd right. really all the labels in America and I started getting a bit of a reputation and I started DJing in Oxford and then doing a few things in London um and I um there was a really great writer uh called Cynthia Rose who would come to Honest John's and she um thought I should meet with this guy Paul Bradshaw that ran a magazine called Strano Chaser and I met him and I asked if I could do a column in the magazine about new records. And I called it My Wax, Please. And I really, really my main desire at the time, to be honest with you, was to work at a record company. I just really wanted to get a job at, I wanted to get a job at Island or Talking Loud or Virgin. And I couldn't get a job. And then through my column, I was getting sent a lot of exclusive music and writing about, you know, things that had either one, you know, hadn't come out or were even on cassette demos and things like that. And um, I started just, you know, the idea of, you know, because it's kind of what DJs were doing at the time. They were setting up their own labels, you know, and I thought, you know, maybe I should do my own label and be able to do something where I, I, you know, I started, people started to, kind of think it would be a cool idea and I had I, I managed to set up some releases and I I borrowed a thousand pounds from Mark who ran Honest John's at the time and went to America and I and I signed my first record Amazing. That, was, that was in 92 when I was 18 yeah. 18 I mean that's you know what was I doing when I was 18 I was 
Good Lord. I was messing about with a monophonic synth. Wow, it's pretty good, though. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, but, you know, I was so, so naive at that age. I mean, I mean how, when, when, so what age were you when it really happened for you with having 17? Uh, 77, 78, so I'd be 21, 22, you know. So still you're young. way ahead of me. I'm still young, you know, still young. Yeah. I mean, I suppose that. Yeah. But I'm. <laughs> I, I, I think doing a record, a record label maybe was just it was different than being in a band. You know, lots of you know you'd have lots of young people in bands. Did you ever? You were you, were, you obviously we're fast forwarding quite a long way here, but you became a performer, right? And 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 you, that became a central plank of your creativity. Um, well, did you, you have an ambition to do that? Yeah, at this point. Do I have? Did you, did you have an ambition to become a front man of some description or have a band? Yeah, I wanted to do everything, man. <laughs> I wanted to push it. I wanted to make records like the people that I love. You know, people like right. Bob Bass and Soul to Soul and Massive Attack and and the hip hop artists and the, the idea that you could make something that wasn't a traditional guitar band. You know, which was very dominant throughout. Yeah. You know still in the 90s it was the dominant force in music it was yeah you know um i wanted to uh, i i i loved the image of it and the style and the culture and i wanted to bring it all together i wanted to create i wanted to do i saw things like a film i wanted it to be like star i wanted to create my own universe i wanted yes. it to be cinematic universe yeah, and, and 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 everything in it and that would be from what you were creating and who you're working with and the idea of collaborating to wanting to put out my own records and also the visuals were very important it always was for us yeah um but i i, I was uh, when we signed to virgin we were fanatical about having it written into the contract that we had complete sign off on everything that yeah. was how we were visually represented in yeah. artwork and posters and everything and they went sure you can have that if you want, and uh, but it wasn't the common thing at the time. Yeah. Well, I, say, I was just saying, you know, I had complete creative control. Uh, and uh, a large part of the perception of Mowax was the really beautiful graphic design of everything and the integrated nature of it. It reminded me a bit of the. It's kind of uh, a more detailed version of something like Peter Saville or, you know, that kind of that kind of uh, project. But everything felt like an artwork. But that's what I wanted it to be. And that's what I felt records were that in certain certain kinds of records were, you know, I, the celluloid records where Futura did them and you could join them up. A class record like Combat Rock, uh, you know, ECM, Blue Note, you know, uh, Warp Records, you know, they, the, the, you know, I, I, the list could go on. Uniform bags, whether it's Tommy Boy or Def Jam, you know, Major yeah. Force, you know, these things that you wanted to collect, you wanted to have them all, and some of them... That's it. It's the collector's thing. It's like trading cards. Yeah. I always believed in that right from the start when we were doing stuff. And I, but I also think that identity is key. I mean, in, 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 in music, in art, in culture, it is about identity, and it's weird how... You know, the press was very negative at the time about Moax sort of being style over content. But the thing was that it was about it was about the combination of everything that to me was no different than if you were into hip, you know, there was a look for different genres of music, you know, the, yeah. and in those days it was tribal and you had the goths or you had the rock, you know, rock kids or you had, you know, at the time it would be more grungy or you know more ravey or whatever and for me i was just trying to kind of put all you know give that identity for the world that me and my friends and the community were were um a part of and interested in you know and i i love the idea that you know i wanted as much as possible the records to be able to stand alone as pieces of artwork i didn't like particularly you know as as it as it sort of developed and i got more and more into that you know, and, and more um, confident about what we were doing design-wise and identity is that for me it was very key that I didn't want like lots of text on records if I could help. No, I want that information on there. I did. I wanted it to be stickers that you could take off, and then you just have the artwork. You know, and and it's not like 
I was the first person to do that. I was inspired by you know, some of the biggest artists in the world have done brilliant. Yeah, of course. Whether it's Led Zeppelin or the Beatles or whatever. And I, I also love from collecting, particularly in the 60s and 70s, where everything was made into a record. I mean, every there was, you know, everything was on vinyl. The, yeah. the packaging, there was amazing packaging. And I loved, you know, especially if you got into really esoteric records like Silver Apples, and it would be a, you know, it would be a Pentagon, you know, record and you know whatever with like, you know, and that you'd have a the cover would you have to open it up and it would unfold. Yeah, I love all that stuff. Yeah, I, I, love, I love one that. of my earliest albums that I bought was Quintessence. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. And they they had a um, they had a, a, a gatefold sleeve. That opened up into a shrine. Yeah, no, it's amazing <laughs> with candles and everything. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, so in some way, I always thought we never, I never got to take it as far as I wish because in, in in when I looked at you know that period, it was fucking crazy what people were doing. You know, and I was yeah. I was just trying to take all of that stuff through. I was really into collecting. I was into collecting records and toys, and I was really and clothes and sneakers and. You know, and I was just trying to find a way to put it all put it all together. I love all that stuff. I love all that. I've got I've got a few uh, on my notes. Right, normally, right, I write one sheet of notes, and this is brilliant. Okay. <laughs> right. But for you, I've had to do two sheets. Oh, okay. Anyway, um, so I've got some key words that I've that I've highlighted here. Control, right? You mentioned that on your. Uh, that, that you, you need control of things. You are very driven. I think I'm right in saying that. Somebody said that you were relentless. I love that, right? Um, but your vision, you have a vision, and that's the key thing that knits all these things together. You are a conceptual artist that happens to work throughout your career in the field of music and music, the music business. I can't think of many people who cover the bases and keep the plates spinning that you've managed to keep spinning throughout your career. Um, I know I'm blowing smoke up your ass, but I, I, I genuinely, genuinely believe it. And, and so I think, you know, I've just got a lot of admiration for the way that you've conducted your business. I know you went through a hard time, you know, a couple of divorces and, you know, but, I, I've spoken to quite a few DJs. I've interviewed them that were very popular at that time. And the fact that they were just going, right, we've got to make hay while the sun shines, right? And you're jetting all over the world, you're doing these things, and you're working, you're working your nadgers off all the time. But that has a price, doesn't it? Yeah, and it was... Uh... You know, I was running a record label when I was, when I was, so for instance, when science fiction came out, I was running a record label. I had a one-year-old daughter and I was probably playing four times a week, wow. every week. You know, wow. I was doing, to be doing 150, 200 gigs a year, you know, plus wow. doing a label uh, and everything else that went with it, you know, which. Um, yeah, I think, I think. Very hedonistic yeah. period of time. And, you know, it was uh, kind of. It was also, you know, it was quite free. It was, you know, in the way that I, I, you see now, you know, it's the, you weren't being photographed all the time. There wasn't people to videoing. It was a different interaction. Nightclubbing, being out, those places were imp much different than they are now in the sense that you didn't have the internet. You didn't have mobile phones in the same way. You couldn't video somebody. You, you literally... Those you went out to experience everything to get the information to hear the records, you know. Exactly. And so, all of those factors combined, it was a uh, it was pretty pretty um, a pretty crazy time. And I think that in retrospect, when I said you know about slowing down, it's like if I'd known that it would go on for this long, <laughs> um, you know, I I would definitely. Would have liked to have been able to sort of be a bit more present at times you know? <laughs> yeah do you think that um because i i mean i'm relating it to my own experience but um did you think that you were kind of creatively immortal wow I mean, or, or like uh, sorry but, but and also from a business perspective as well you know do you think because i used to think yeah something fails it's fine i'll just make some other stuff or i'll get another production job or you know yeah I, I, I definitely felt like that in the sense that i could 
I'd be, I could keep going. I think that, you know, it's, it's sort of my wax is difficult because I was so young when it finished. And I think that, you know, the, for me, being able to have some time to have sat back and go, whoa, wait a minute, what are you doing? Yeah. I couldn't handle it anymore. I just couldn't take it. I was, I just couldn't take, you know, it was, it, it was very difficult to manage, you know, to, you know, the business, the relationships, everything else. And it sort of just became too much for me at that point. But that was because I hadn't had any stop. I hadn't stopped for so long. You know, I know it's tough. I've had some time out, you know, in retrospect, it would probably, would have, you know, the label would have probably continued, you know, but that's also, you know, what makes these things, you know, there's a the mythology, the, what it is, you know, it, became, it, it, it kind of like some, certain other labels that I love, it kind of, it represents something and it's, it's it, it was, you know. Of its time. Being that way and had its time, you know. Yeah. Did it, I remember thinking at the time, with, uh, relating to what you're saying, uh, when we were at our peak with Heaven 17, I just thought, you know, everything was so intense. We didn't take a holiday for three years. Yeah. You know, it was just constant, must make the most of this opportunity, you know. Um, I mean, for me also, I was just living it, you know, and I loved it. And I had a lot of energy and, you know, and I was young. And it was just, it was very exciting to be jetting all over the world, playing, DJing, being at the centre of things. <laughs> you know uh that you know which were just sort of happening and it was very exciting exciting and and you know so i didn't think about it too much you no. know it was just what you were doing you know yeah, yeah. i look back in now i can be like that's mad you know <laughs> like, listen uh, if you never did anything else in your career you you know introducing yeah uh, is just an insanely brilliant record. I mean, I remember that record changed my what I wanted to do creatively. I just thought, I don't want to be that, but I, it was like another, uh, for me, an epiphanal moment, like I suppose punk was, where you realised you could do it. Yeah. Now I just wanted to go, I want to be fucking DJ Shadow. I want to do... I want to make an album out of bits and pieces and I want to put it together in the most stylishly beautiful way. And um, so anyway, that's... No, it's an amazing moment. I'm very proud to have been involved in that. In that, You know, it's, you know, it's a, it, it is a brilliant record and it was, a, it was such an amazing experience being, you know, our, my relationship with Josh at that time was, was really special. Yeah, yeah. And tell us about Uncle then. So, I mean, I know how it came about and, you know, there were various falling outs, but what you were doing was in highly innovative, I thought. It was not only musically innovative, but um, as I mentioned before, the graphic, the graphic approach with the characters and the sort of thing, which is a little bit... A bit like the gorillas thing later on, I suppose. Yeah, uh, I think they nicked a little bit. Anyway, uh, so I mean, I, uh, yeah, I, I, Damon, Damon sort of uh, mentioned that he might at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but you know this this idea of it, it adds to the mystery of everything that went on with with Uncle and that you know science fiction, all that stuff, just. Just great stuff, and it was like this thing's like, who are they? What are these people? You know, are they fictional characters? Is it is it a, some kind of philosophical manifestation of some bigger idea? You know, I couldn't quite wrap my head around it, and I loved that because it, it's like a is it felt like something you had to dig into, right? Yeah. And um, so, tell me what. Apart from that, you, this was like you uh, manifesting your own destiny and going, right, I'm going to be a pop star now. But, I mean, what was the original central concept behind Uncle? Tell us all about it then. Originally, it started as a kind of, I wanted it as a sort of production, my production company. You know, you had like DJs and hip-hop crews and they'd have their kind of, their crew name or whatever. Yeah. And I wanted to do my my thing. And it was me and Tim Goldsworthy who then went on to do... LCD sound system and, yeah. and DFA records. Um, and 
it, uh, you know, you sort of, it started kind of as a loco. I mean, you'd have a lo- I put a logo in my Strano Dead Chaser column because I liked having logos because it was, you know, that's, that's about hip hop records and covers and the covers and all these different crews and things like that. And and then I start I I I I started asking different labels if I could do the re- try remix and um, uh, Island Records. I've become friends with quite a few people there, and actually ended up living. The first person I shared a flat with in London was Gavin from who worked at Island at Fourth and Broadway, and Trevor who ran uh, what was the label there called? God, I can't remember. It was the sort of jazz world, Mango probably or something like that. It was Mango, I think. And he was doing compilations um, with a DJ called Patrick Forge. And he just signed this artist called uh, oh God, what was Ronnie Jordan, who right. was a right. jazz guitarist. And he had a hit with a kind of sort of funky drummer kind of version of So What, you know. And yeah. he had another single coming out with this rapper at the time called IG Culture. And I, I winged it to try and do a remix of this track. It wasn't very good and didn't come out, but that was the beginning of how Uncle started more, starting to do remixing. And hypothetically, we kind of were like, we're going to make an, you know, we want to make an album, you know. We were just trying to work ideas out. And I became friends. I, I started working with um, this Japanese collective called Major Force, who some of them were living in London, Kudo and Toshi. They had a studio. <laughs> and that's where I started really getting into making records and doing, we, we suddenly... We did a remix for, I was trying to think, we did UFO, a Japanese band was the first thing, and then Radiohead asked us to do something, and then and Massive Attack, and it sort of came from there. Not a bad thing to really? No, no, <laughs> it was great. It was really great. And and then I wanted to make do a 12-inch. I wanted to do, I just to try and do some, like, some tracks. So I went in the studio with Toshi and Kudo, and we did this, record called the time has come where we sampled sun Ra, and they called themselves the ems orchestra and it was like ems synth sun Ra loops beats wow. and they had amazing like analog gear so it was just this kind of just went into this weird space i suppose at the time it was what was then later called trip hop where we just sort of made this kind of weird um soundtracky you know, experimental. This is what I love. I love all this. And it, and it started from there. I put that out and Portishead remixed it and, and and that became quite popular. And then, Uncle, you know, Uncle started getting a bit of a name from the remixes. And then I signed to AM and part of the deal was that Uncle would make a record. And originally it was me and Tim. And uh, we went to, we, we did some initial demos in London. And then the idea was we went to LA to work with Mara Cardato, who did the Beastie Boys. Right, and we all piled over there. We got this mad house as you do when you're 21. <laughs> I can <laughs> only imagine. And we hired Meatloaf's old house, <laughs> which was like this eight, ten bedroom mansion with a pool, and we had everybody there: Shadow, Futura, Kudo, his kids, his wife, me. My daughter's mum came over. That was the fir- our first rendezvous. Uh, Max Burgos, who was running Grand Royale and money, running and um, looking after money, managing Money Mark. Yeah, it was mad, and we did we, did, we didn't do a lot of recording though. <laughs> 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 um, Living the uh, dream, literally. And that was sort of that, and then that sort of became the end at the end of that, and 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 uh, I ended up Tim ended up sort of leaving. He wanted to do other things, and went eventually went to New York. Um, and you know, I, I I made a record with with DJ Shadow. You know, looking great. Um, so, oh my God, I do, I can't possibly get through all the shit that's I've written down. It's impossible. I'm going to throw some more words at you that I noted down anyway. Charismatic, you love that. Debt, <laughs> and conceptualist. And I noticed in the obviously they have to have jeopardy moments and everything in the documentary, and it's like. You've never been that great, uh, even though you're a great business person. You generate a lot of uh, a lot of uh, income. It seems that you were a little um, profligate, shall we say? Is that correct to say? A little profligate, you know, kind of you yeah. like spending money a lot. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, 
Yeah. Yeah. But at the, well, it, it depends on what times. <laughs> That's, you know, in the early days. Yes, but I look back in retrospect, and you know, people talk. You know, there's this big thing in the documentary. He lost two million pounds to Excel. Yeah, it was a. It, it didn't work out. It wasn't great. Uh, we lost, you know, quite a lot of money at the time. Um, it's nothing compared to what has been spent on bands. I, mean, I just spoke to a friend of mine. He's got an artist, and they've just spent three million pounds on her, and she's she's not had. It's hard to have a record out, and then it's really? kind of yeah. I mean, I think that you know a lot of these things can get really blown up, and and the reality is when when Moax also finished, the A and R staff stayed on at, at for instance XL, and these things don't, don't get talked about in the documentary, particularly. You know, Nick, who I hired, signed Adele and <laughs> Adele, so wow. XL okay. did all right, Beggars did all right. You know, I was only there for you know, you're there for three years. I think it's very difficult. You know, so for example, or you know, and we spent, you know, we spent money, but I spent money on things that people thought was not important at the time, like artwork. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and you know, uh, I think that, but I don't think in retrospect it was like some kind of, it was ridiculous or it was over the top. It was, you know, it was very much every. I invested everything I had into the records and if the record label wouldn't pay for it i paid for it that was sort of my mistake at times wow that's that's quite something i don't think i would have ever well actually that's not quite true i did do that sometimes i got the money back in the end and also you know a lot of things that i did at that time were you know were they didn't happen in the way that they are now you know we, we we i was very involved in the early sort of new toy world that sort of came out of Japan and streetwear and things like that. But it didn't, it wasn't the business it is today. I think that, you know, what's interesting on my wax and that period is that the influence and where, where and, and what it did then is now very much part of the way that modern culture is. And even yes. myself having a label and being, once being, have a label and being an artist and, and, trying to do other things outside of just the box of music, whether it was, you know, I was the first person to do a sneaker with Nike in, 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 out in, in my world or, you know, but they weren't big profitable things. Now it's a very different business. You know? Oh, it really is. Yeah. It's more, it's multidisciplinary. I, I think people just saw, I just spent everything I had on, 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 you know, I didn't buy cars. I didn't buy houses. I bought paintings and 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 I bought records and I bought right. you know so you know. The other thing I wrote down here is um, it's all about the work. It's I, yeah. that's the one of the big takeaways from from the documentary. Really, even through the hard times and the the massive blow up successes and everything it was always about the music it looks like to me and your attitude towards it and and also you know your um but uh, it was about experiencing it was key emotional experience emotional engagement it was always an emotional experience and that was why yeah. it was very amazing but it was also can be very hard because it is it's 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 not something that I can separate. It's you know it's, no no of course all about that and and that everything feeds off each other in that way. Exactly. So yeah. I've got also reaching for the stars, which is what was mentioned actually, and and an instinctive dreamer. Uh, the, uh, that that I think those two words sum you up. You are a dreamer, but and you're instinctive, and over the period over a period of time, you acquired the skills to make it all real. And sometimes the reality didn't last, and sometimes it's last. It, you know, you must be very proud of your legacy. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm proud of 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 the work, you know, and and a lot of it, not not everything. <laughs> not everything. Yeah, but, but you, know, you made your decisions at the time that you were proud. proud of. I'm very proud of the fact that what you know that I've been able to be part of. Uh, what I have and the culture that I have, and 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 hopefully, there's you know contributed in that way. You know, excellent. Okay, we're coming to the end. I could have gone on for another hour, to be honest. But there you go. Uh, maybe we'll have to have part two at some point. Um, I just want to say, um, let me just make sure I'm not missing anything. Absolutely. Oh yeah, meltdown. 
Congratulations, mate. That was Thank an absolute you. achievement. Yeah, that was that was that was a highlight for me. That was just an amazing experience. And again, you know, I, I got to work with some brilliant people, and it was there was you know a lot of other people in the mix that really helped that become what it was. It was. But that I know, I, I I've become a bit of a cultural producer myself, and I know how difficult pulling major events are together and the stress it causes. It's quite. Well, they they you know they were very supportive um, of of. of me and I, and I you know it was a we I really again just wanted to try and push it as far as we possibly could you know we've got some great people involved okay smash it's questions time stupid questions but they're not right. really because it reveals something about you um what's your favorite film apocalypse now probably be between that and maybe the god godfather and apocalypse yeah now. yeah uh favorite tv for uh tv series past present Box oh, that's hard. Uh, Sopranos would be up there for me. Yeah, cool. So, Book on the road. Jack Kerouac is one of my top. Yeah, classic, absolutely classic. Um, right, right. Oh yeah, I this is an interesting one specifically for you. I always try to put a special one in for everyone. Um, which other label do you admire? There's, there's many, you know. To be honest with you. Um, from growing up, labels like you know that continue now. Warp, Ninja Tune are brilliant. You know, XL is brilliant. You know, and Beggars and what they've done. Um, Just the interview with Matt Black, actually. Right. <laughs> from Ninja Tune, yeah. yeah. Um, um, you know, there's classics, and you know when it, you, there's sort of labels that I loved collecting and things like Ninety Nine Records. And, right, right. You know, obscure labels like that, and. Um, Factory is a great record yeah, label. I mean, it's quite a lot for me that has influenced me over the years. I, I talked about some of the early ones earlier in the podcast, like Circa and yeah, 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 Broadway and labels like that. Def Jam, Tommy Boy, you know, they were hugely influential for me. And one of the biggest was Major Force, you know, Japanese label. Right. It's great this because all, all the podcast listeners go down the rabbit holes online nowadays. It's very easy to do. It's so informative, these little insights into your into your taste, you know. Anyway, um uh favorite musical artist or composer, or you know, one of them anyway. Didn't have to be somebody you work with. It's really hard. I mean, composer, I would say probably somebody like Vangelis as a composer would be there, would be up there. Yeah. Yeah. Singer and musician, probably I think probably made the best record of all time would be Marvin Gaye. Oh, I'll go with that. It's hard to argue with that, isn't it? And he had to push to get that fucking thing released. But you know, so many of his other records are just mind blowing as well. I mean, yeah. he's just an extraordinary artist. I think. Yeah, exactly. Um, do you? You're obviously interested in visual art. What? Who's your favourite visual or conceptual artist? Jean-Michel Basquiat was hugely influential. Um, you know, Futura, who I've worked with, and and that world, people like three D. Um, Did you collect any of that stuff? Yeah, yeah. That that'll be your pension fund then. Yeah. <laughs> um, an epiphanal moment in your life, a moment of realization, or a turning point. I mean, wow, wow. Having my daughter was a, a very important moment for me. It had a very big influence and continues to have a very, very, very big in my life. Uh, how old is she now? 25. More or less the same as my daughter, yeah. And, you know, she's, um, I was, yeah, quite young when I so when I was 23 in the midst of everything that was going on that, that was quite a moment a lot of responsibility um, at that age isn't it? yeah so you know I'm you know she's the best thing in, 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 in the world and I'm so proud of her great finally what's your favorite synth oh wow you know what it's so funny because when I came into this I started writing down I was like 
if he's going to ask me about electronic records or we're going to go down an electronic rabbit hole, I better have my shit together. <laughs> I've loads of some stuff. I mean, CS80 is one of, probably on yeah, there. It's very good. Very good. What, what's your favourite electronic record then? I mean, I've got all time. All time. Oh, man, it's difficult because there's so many. But if I think of a sort of composition of, of, of what I consider to be very electronic music, of a certain kind of, you know, something that also created a template for so much, I would say Blade Runner by Van Gelis. Right. It's an extraordinary piece of work. Absolutely. And it's beautiful. And uh, if somebody asked me that question, I would probably say, I feel love. Um, yeah, I, you know what? I, it's weird because I see those as sort of dance records. It's difficult when we talk about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I sort yeah. of see it as like the greatest two dance records of all time to me would be I Feel Love and probably Blue Monday would be there and then you're getting into things like Derek May, Strings of yeah, Life, yeah. things like yeah. that. Um, again, there's so many. But, oh, you know, yeah. when, you'll get, when, I, when I think about electronic, I think more about a kind of a slightly different palette and I think more... Yeah, yeah. Angelus than I do yeah. techno or house. Yeah, you yeah. Know? yeah. So you know, there, you know, there's, there's, it, yeah. I'd say Vangelis is the one that resonates with me as a record. Really, uh, and also its influence because yeah. it wouldn't have techno in the way that it was without that record. You know, you interesting, know? and because people like Carl Craig and Derek May were being influenced by records like that. You know? Yeah, yeah. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. And uh, I can't believe our paths haven't crossed at any point. It'd be nice to actually meet up and, um, you know, shoot the breeze. I'd love that. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to do that. Well, uh, well where, where are you based? I'm in southwest London. All right. I'm in Marylebone, so it's, okay. it's not impossible. I'm just by Hammersmith. It's, I'm not far from you. All right. So I think, I think the natural meeting place would probably be Soho, wouldn't it? Sounds good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to do that, definitely. Uh, well, let's do it, man. I'd love to, I'd love to talk uh, more about our mutual love of music. Yeah. Cool, it's man. Been- Thanks so much for your time. Really. Oh, thank, thank you for having me. I hope that was all right. Oh, it was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. go for a, a drink of some description alcohol or non-alcohol who don't i don't know such a fan of his work and his entrepreneurial spirit and his creativity and obviously gone through some fantastic times some hard times he works like a dog it seems to me which is a lesson in itself has been responsible for bringing to public attention so many great pieces of music and the whole kind of integrated approach to releasing records on the Mowax label of the visuals, the kind of style of it all and, you know, certain sound. And then, of course, the typical story of it getting swallowed up by the big majors and all of a sudden it's over and then something else comes along. And anyway, he's a visionary. Uh, he's done loads of stuff. And um, his meltdown was one of the best ones that ever was and actually was the most commercially successful, I think, as well. So thank you very much, James. Really enjoyed that. Um, How is everyone? It's getting colder, heading towards winter. It'll be Christmas before you know it. Party season in central London. Office party. And um, we will be having a good time towards Christmas, I hope. We normally have a thing with our family called Cheesemas, where we buy a selection of cheese and then we all vote on them. We have all the accoutrements and things, fruit and um, condiments and biscuits and f- you name it. And uh, it's such a fun thing we do at Christmas. And Nick, the idea actually from Rachel Meadows, our backing singers, family, the Mosleys. So thank you for that. We'll be doing that. Also be having a M17 Christmas do, I suppose, and... Uh, an illustrious Christmas do at some point. Looking forward to it all, really. Try and cheer up the dark nights. Um, if you want to contact me electronically, martin at gmail.com, or please consider subscribing to my Patreon page 
to keep this bloody thing going and keeping it independent and keeping it fun. And that's patreon.com slash electronically ours. Another great guest next week. We've got some doozies coming up. Speak to you soon. Bye. This is Kate Brooks. Martin, Jeremy Corbyn was an amazing guest. I really wish he was PM. Amen. Absolutely agree with so much of what he mentioned. Thanks, Kate. Uh, Nick Pletus. This is not Nick Pletus. Uh, that's the title. Mark Wasil. Hi, Martin. When are you going to have Nick Pletus on the show? That's a good idea. Um, obviously a fan. Looking forward to seeing your first Los Angeles Heaven 17 live this month. Yep. Wassall, Wassall, Wassall. Matthias Renberg, I've written before and almost all my suggestions have been realised. That's good. I was casually listening to some music and you probably have a lot in common common with severed heads. A lot of people have suggested Tom Ellard. Um, Loved the podcast and your style of interviewing. Thanks, Matthias. Marcus, Dr. Marcus Philippon. Dear Martin, so great finding 40 years after becoming a Heaven 17 fan, your podcast with all these great interviews of so many artists. Uh, I really adore. Well, finally, Robin Rimbo. A really lovely talk between the two of you. Deepness and light listening to friends. Made my day. One question. Robin mentioned dance music piece called Split or Split, choreographed by some Australian choreographer, Lucy, and he said the clip can easily be found on the web. Unfortunately, he couldn't find it. Well, I don't know how to help you with that. Uh, you'll have to contact Scanner at scanner.com, I think. Scanner dot spelt out, or one word. Thank you so much for your great work, Martin. Really a lighthouse in these days. That's a beautiful thing to say. Thank you. Marcus from Germany. Richard Bagley, Matt Bogler, Synth Programmer to the Stars, a.k.a. The Unfinished, turned me on to your podcast, and I'm so glad that he did, so I binge-listened to many of these on a two-week cruise to the very rainy Canary Islands. What a treat. I saw you as part of the Human League when he supported the Stranglers at the top rank in Sheffield in 1978 with slideshow and reel-to-reel spinning in the background and wondered whether you would consider adding J.J. Burnell to your list of potential interviewees. Well, I really would like to. He was very kind to us, actually. Uh, the gig remains in my memory in particular, uh, as I had a run-in with one of the top of the top-ranked bouncers who objected to the fact I was trying to take photos of the band. Ah, the joys of youth. Thanks, Richard. Dave B. I've been listening to the podcast roughly from the beginning and just finished number 60. That's a big investment, that. That's 60 hours with Pete Wiley. I was just stunned with enjoyment throughout the whole thing. You must have him back on for another go. Dave in Maryland, USA. Thanks, Dave. 